Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Theaters, opera halls, concert venues were all hit hard by the pandemic. People didn't want to gather in close quarters. Well, to get a gauge on how and where people might now be participating in the arts once again, the National Endowment for the Arts, the NEA, focused on this topic in its most recent five-year survey. For more on the methodology and how the results guide NEA activities, we turn to the agency's Director of Research and Analysis, Sunil Iyengar. Mr. Iyengar, good to have you with us. Great to be here, Tom. Thanks. Well, first of all, this is an every five-year survey. Tell us the purpose and the aims of, of conducting a survey and who you conducted among. That's correct. Well, just to back up here, um, we are, of course, the National Endowment for the Arts, which is you know an independent federal agency that's charged with promoting access and opportunities to participate in the arts nationwide in all its all the different forms and ways of participating in the arts from creating art to learning about it to you know engaging through as an audience member and you know using technology and engaging with the arts that way so you know that's really in our remit and the way we support grants and initiatives around the country to do that work so to be a responsible federal funder one of the things we do of course is collect data and analyze it from time to time so we have actually had baked into our data collections since really the early 1980s believe it or not tom partnerships with the u.s census bureau whereby we you know we collect through audience through household survey data you know very reliable response rate very reliable um you know, survey frameworks where they, of course, capture the, you know, the diversity of the U.S. population and reflect it very well in the numbers. We managed to collect data on how Americans participate in arts activities. This is a survey of adults, 18 and over. And um, so the last most recent survey was in 2022. Again, the, the most the first survey was in 1982. So we've come a long way. And yes, we do it roughly every five years. And we use these data to report to the general public, to art, you know, arts practitioners, organizations, administrators, but also, as I say, the general public, including journalists like yourself, to understand how arts has evolved and have evolved in these in this country, and particularly how different people now are engaging with the arts and on different platforms and different venues. And that then in turn informs some of our work as an agency to sure. try to, you know, reach the most number of people in the most you know effective ways. And with respect to attending performances, say, is how most people come in contact with the arts or going to galleries, uh, that is, as consumers of art, have things mostly returned to the way they were in 2018, or has there been some alteration even with the mostly receded pandemic? Well, actually, Tom, it's interesting that the most common way people kind of get their art, so to speak, or engage with the arts is actually through consumption by digital media. That may be no surprise when you think about how many people listen to music you know, while driving or listen to the sh you know, wherever they are. But also other ways, you know, especially through new virtual opportunities to engage with the arts. So that's actually been fairly constantly the highest proportion of adults participating in the arts. So that's 75% of adults. Then, then you're correct. The next highest level, one of the next highest things, is is actually attending, say, a gallery or performance, or you know, um, through attending, visiting or attending events. Sure. And that that could also also be true of you know let me just be clear uh performing arts at festivals and you know outdoor activities so yes you're right as a composite those activities have actually declined since our last the survey prior to this which was in five years earlier in 2017 and that may not have surprised a lot of people um, but what i think was kind of startling is how certain art forms saw 
particularly precipitous, you know, kind of declines, like in uh, theater, for example, going to theater, where I think the rate of decline was something like 40% or higher. And you saw that also with other art forms like, you know, uh, dance and uh, some of those kinds of, you know, live arts events in the past. And we, you know, again, we weren't surprised you know, by how stark those declines are, especially when you think about the differences in demographic group participation. But um, I will say that there were two kind of counterpoints to that. One was people going to, you know, one of the things we capture are people visiting places to enjoy the design or architecture of a place. Or, um, you know, that can be true of, you know, buildings, monuments, or neighborhoods, but also kind of parks, national parks, and, or any other kinds of parks. Those kinds of activities actually stayed, you know, didn't, didn't take a very severe decline. It dipped a little bit, but was roughly the same in many respects. And I think that has to do, of course, with people's general comfort level with outdoor activities, perhaps, because a lot of those things are outdoors. You also yeah. noticed an interesting phenomenon, a decline, and this has been steady for a couple of surveys, 10 years, a decline in fiction reading. Yes, that's correct. So reading in general, we did see the you know, percentage of people reading books in general decline a little bit. But we also saw, as you say, a very steep decline over time. We've seen it in fiction reading, that is reading novels or short stories. So it's about 38% of adults now who do that, whereas in the past, it was maybe over 50%. I, I say this because not to just to sort of be a worry word about it, but I think it's important to realize these trends can be reversed. Years and years ago, there was a similar dip. And for example, the NEA galvanized around a program called the Big Read, which is one of our national initiatives, which still is very strong. And it sort of supports these the idea of one book, one community, you know, efforts where there sure. are book clubs and participation activities around books and reading. And that, along with a variety of other factors, mobilization by libraries and, you know, literacy organizations and writers helped to drive up the reading rates a few years ago. So, you know, in, in fiction reading. So I think hopefully, you know, there's more going to be some more momentum around this and people recognizing right. that it's unacceptable to have such low rates of reading when we want to cultivate imagination, empathy, and all those capacities reading affords. We are speaking with Sunil Iyengar. He is Director of Research and Analysis at the National Endowment for the Arts. And we've been talking about the consumption side, and most of the consumers are not where grants go, but rather to creators. What are some of the trends revealed in 2022 survey on the art creation side. There's yes. probably just so, as much fiction being written as there was, even if nobody's <laughs> well, reading it. Yeah, we don't have as much, not to get too technical here, but we are talking to federal news networks. So I'll just say quickly that one of the things uh, to know is that although we have really good long-term trend data on the attendance side, when it comes to reporting on creating, some of those questions have varied over the years because of different explosive you know, new forms of creating art you know, as we all know, a lot of it through technology. So we haven't been able to retain the same questions for years and years. We've changed them. So it's harder to make year over year comparisons for creating art. That said, still a very healthy, more than half, 52% of adults did some sort of, sort of creating personal creation or performance of art, which is wonderful to know. And that also, you know, seems to have remained roughly constant, although we can't make definite comparisons. It looks like over the numbers from the previous five years, that's roughly the same. So it does suggest that, you know, healthy, substantial sure. portion of the U.S. population still 
creates art of their own. And that, of course, is extremely important to our chair's mission. And she keeps talking about not only, you know, understanding how art goers and going to arts events is a critical part of the arts ecosystem, but also people independently creating art, living artful lives, as she calls it, which could involve creating art or making, doing something with a design in your house or, you know, really informal, if I will, if I can say so ways of engaging with the arts that may not involve necessarily going right. off to, say, an opera performance in a really fine art symphony hall or something like that. That leads to the question of how all of this translates into, say, an activity like grant making. And let me just make up an example, ballet, sure. something I actually mm-hmm. don't know anything right. about. I mean, I'm impressed when I see right. ballet dancers. I don't know how the heck they do it, but they are quite talented. And let's say that the interest on the consumption side is going down for something like that. People don't watch ballet except at Christmas time, say. How would that translate back into grant making? I mean, how do you know whether to conclude, well, there's no sense in investing grants in this because it's a dying form? Or can we invest in this and revive this form? I mean, how does that all work? Yes. Well, I try to be humble and recognize that while we do collect data and try to analyze it and certainly integrate it in decision making for the agency with our senior leadership, we do have a statute and it's very clear about what we fund and we, in fact, have a criteria by which grants get work reviewed by citizen expert panels across the country. You know, so really something like ballet, just to take that example, it, any they would the projects would be reviewed on their individual excellence and merit, which are the two overarching criteria. And more recently, our chair has actually helped to modify the way we look at those criteria by understanding that when we say excellence, for example, they may not mean only say, excellence of the execution of a work, but the processes by which the work comes into being. So engaging with community members, for example, if it's relevant to the to the work, you know, there's a lot of in, increasingly there's a great deal of wor- artwork that now is, let's say, delving into other domains of human experience, whether it's arts and health or arts and education and, you know, trying to reach broader audiences. And so understanding the merits of the work and the excellence of the work has to do with uh, recognizing, you know, the sort of so what factor, like not only is the work, you know, excellent on its own terms, but is it in fact contributing to some maybe broader outcomes in the sense that uh, great works of arts invariably do. It really is up to the reviewers and it's not a decision that we make from the top down based on these data. Although I will add that what it tells us about demographic groups participating in different art forms helps us to shape our application guidelines, which then we hope gets us broader and more diverse portfolio of art projects to support. And just from a research standpoint, a technology standpoint, because as you say, we are Federal News Network here, is there any opportunity to get more fine-grained or larger volumes of data, given that so much consumption is digital? And for that matter, you know, ticket sales and all of this is all digital now. Most people don't even know what a box office is. (laughs) Is there a way to tap into social media, tap into things to to get an even more fine-grained picture of what's going on? So because this is a radio interview, I know I'm grateful that your listeners can't see me salivate at those prospects because I think that's really exciting. And we, of course, would want to try to find ways to tap that kind of data. Now, the thing is, you probably know, in a federal agency, we have to be careful. And, you know, our Office of General Counsel and others would probably be very judicious, no pun intended, in trying to understand how can we um, do this in a way that's, you know, through the rules to make sure we can enter into data agreements or partnerships that will allow us to obtain, say, private sector data 
or commercial data for those purposes. You know, a lot of them have licenses, sure. maybe you know, indemnity clauses and things like that, which we can't necessarily do. Another way to get around it in a sense is really, again, through these household surveys. So we actually had a parallel survey with this one, which we did through an agreement with the National Science Foundation, which allowed us to, it's called the General Social Survey. You may have heard of it. It's a major household survey. And within that, we added a module, an arts module, that allowed us to understand how digital arts programming is received by people in the general community. So while it didn't come directly from, say, some of the streaming apps or from the data didn't come from those apps or from those software companies, it did come from individuals responding how they engage with digital arts. And so that told us a great deal. And one thing I can't resist saying is it shared with us is something we didn't really understand or know before, which is that a much more diverse demographic, let's say, racially, ethnically, even by gender and so forth, participated in digital art forms and said they increased their participation over the pandemic. Then kind of the standard groups that we see typically going to arts events, that is to say the demographic profile of people who go to arts events, you know, in person was different from those who seem to be engaging more increasingly in uh, digital art forms. So it does tell us that people are getting their art in a variety of ways, and we have to be cognizant of the differences, not only demographic, but also socioeconomic, geographic variables that may affect people's participation in the arts. And that's where we can do our best job in terms of reaching the communities through our grant making that are underrepresented, which is, of course, a priority of the agency through its equity action plan. All right. Well, some interesting insight there about the art and how America consumes it. Sunil Iyengar is Director of Research and Analysis at the National Endowment for the Arts. Thanks so much for joining me. Great to be here. Thanks again. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the survey data at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. 
Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day.
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.